My name is Terrell Jermaine Starr, host of Black Diplomats, the dopest foreign policy podcast on the planet. Today, we're talking about the uprisings taking place in Belarus and what that means for its people and their future. Our special guest helping us to break all that down is Belarusian journalist and editor Maria Zaduskaya Komlach, who is a non-resident fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. To make sure that we're on the same page, I'll give you a breakdown on what's going on. And our guest Maria will also fill in the blanks uh, for things that I don't get, uh, that I don't add into this. But just a brief synopsis. Last month, Belarusians cast their votes for president. And while the current president, Alexander Lukashenko, uh, has been in power for nearly 20 years, opposition leaders Maria Kolesnikova Svetlana Tsekhanovskaya and Veronika Tsepkala threatened his hold on power so much so that he initiated unprecedented election rigging and threats to his political opponents that included ballot stuffing, threatening opponents with violence, etc. So Lukashenko, quote unquote, won the election by 80 percent. And what local and international observers all say was uh, were, were unfair and, and, and not free elections. And that was when protesters took to the streets where they have been protesting for a month now. And Belarusian security forces have responded brutally, mass arresting protesters, beating and torturing them. As for the all-female leading opposition leaders, two of them have gone into uh, exile and one was attempted to be uh, exiled out of the country at Ukraine, but uh, she tore up her passport and dashing any chances of the Belarusian authorities to kick her out of the country. Despite all of that and all the threats to the, this pretty much is all female opposition uh, leadership, the protests are still getting stronger by the day. So Maria, uh, you're based in Warsaw, Poland. Thank you for coming on to talk about this. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting. Right away, we're gonna get into the politics and everything, you're gonna break it down for us. But as a Belarusian, uh, this is your home country. Tell me what you're feeling and how this is impacting you personally. Well, as a Belarusian, I haven't slept well for the last months because uh, every night you're, and every morning you're checking the news and you're either hoping that something good has happened, but mostly you're hoping that nothing really bad has happened to people that you know, to people that you heard of, to people that you read in the news. Because it's not only protests that are happening in the weekends it's also like normal daily life of people is disrupted so much by secret services and police threatening them that this is an emotional mixture a cocktail of hope and despair and sometimes you feel totally helpless because you realize that regimes like belarusians do not just go away because people ask them if that would have been so easy you know so many countries in the world would be happier so this is how it impacts me. But on some meta level, it also impacts me uh, in a good way, as I've seen that there is so much solidarity and self-organization of people. And there is a big hope that Belarus will be stronger as a nation, whatever the outcome is. We obviously know that people are hitting the streets. Hundreds of thousands of people are on the streets. But a lot of people don't know about Alexander Lukashenko. So just break down um, his rise to power and how he got to the point where he's considered a strong man by the you know you know by by everybody in belarus and 
how we got to this point today where people are demanding by the hundreds of thousands that he resigned. Well, Lukashenko came to power in a free and fair election, the first ever presidential election in Belarus, which after the breakup of the Soviet Union has been a parliamentary republic for a while. He was young, he was populist, he promised to fight corruption. He was not representing the old communist regime. He was only 35 when it all happened. So actually 39, sorry. And even the first constitution that introduced the president's post was meant uh, to introduce the age census of 40. And then he said, you discriminate me because I'm 39. So they actually changed the constitution draft to just allow him to run for elections because he seemed to be very popular among common people whom he promised to restore back the enterprises that were in crisis after the dissolvement of the Soviet Union, to bring back everything what was good about Soviet Union, such as stable salaries, uh, no jobless people, you know, good relations with former Soviet republics. And plus he promised to really fight corruption and chaos which frankly, of course, were there in plans in the beginning of the 90s in every country of uh, the newly independent republics. So he won the election with 80% of votes. And it was uh, two years later that he actually started um, changing the laws and changing the constitution to concentrate more powers around himself. He initiated several referendums and most of them were considered falsified and rigged back in 1996, then in 2004. And with each referendum, he made himself more and more powerful. Back in 96, he dissolved the parliament. He appointed the new members of parliament. There was no free and fair election to serve as a parliament. Uh, that caused the first big wave of sanctions of the West against him. Then in the end of 90s, his most vocal opponents, political figures, just disappeared, vanished in thin air, their bodies have not been found, and the government has been trying to persuade that they just immigrated and just disappeared somewhere abroad. Uh, four people, uh, two politicians, one businessman who was just unlucky to be in the company of a politician, and later in and also journalists. Their bodies have never been found. No one has been accused in three cases, but many people have started talking about death squadrons that actually executed those most vocal proponents. In the 2000s, he was delivering partially on what he promised. So there were decent pages because he was, go he was able to get a lot of credit from Russia through building a union state with Russia he was getting cheap energy resources from there. He was getting loans. He was getting economic preferences. So that allowed his economic promise to be fulfilled. The factories were working. They didn't have to actually reform anything. They didn't have to restructure. People could continue working the way they did in the Soviet Union. But of course, that was not very wise in the long term. While the world economy has become globalized, the products that the Belarusian factories produced became less and less competitive. So he had to make some reforms anyway. And then Russia became irritated that it just gives him money, but he doesn't yet uh, agree to make Belarus part of Russia. So Russia started exerting political pressure on him. Give up your main enterprises, sell them to us, introduce a common currency. This is something the Belarusian people didn't agree to. 
And on, on the side of that, of course, uh, there have been no free and fair election in Belarus since 1994, so it's 26 years now. And many people grew up and became adults knowing no other leader than Lukashenko and knowing very well that the elections were rigged every time. So at some point, all these elements came together. He also denied COVID existence in the beginning, same as Bolsonaro did. And he was very derogatory about people who died of COVID, accusing them of leading the way of life that led them to that death. Before you go in, a lot of people don't know Bolsonaro. Uh, the Bolsonaro is the Brazilian president. Yeah, Br Brazilian. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, so in the beginning of, of 2020, he made a great mistake by underestimating uh, his strategy on COVID. And that was, I think, the last drop. The people realized that he was going to anyway sell them to Russia at some point. He didn't pr provide them with any economic security anymore. And on top of them, he was not going to save them from these new pandemics which was coming to their houses and accused them of being guilty of believing into this, as he called it, psychosis. These factors all came together and Belarusians said, we're fed up. We know you will rig the next elections. Everyone knew that. That was not a surprise. But this time we will come into the streets and we demand you to leave your post peacefully. Just listen to us and agree to us. And this is something he doesn't want to do. One of the observations that I've read about Lukashenko's miscalculation was that he did not believe that these women would, ex the, 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 uh, the opposition, which were all women, you know, like the top three opposition leaders, would exert that much influence in the country. So do you mind going, going into that? Well, no one knew these people uh, before May, June this year. None of them has been an opposition leader, actually, which is a very interesting phenomenon. Uh, so Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, we heard about her really only after her husband, who was a presidential to-be candidate, was jailed in order for, to prevent him from registering. She was a housewife. She really never was in the politics. She never spoke publicly before. Maria Kalesnikova, she's a flute player, she's a musician based in Germany. She just came to Belarus to help Babarika, the candidate who is in jail, to be the head of his team for elections because she believed it was like a civil movement that, you know, she could do that. And then Mrs. Tsepkala, she, was a, she is a very successful manager, a wife of a, until recently Belarusian official and ambassador Mr. Tsepkalo, who was a known figure, and he wanted to be a candidate, and he was not even registered. So when all three main candidates were prevented from registering, then their wives, their like friends or co-workers united, and the government made one miscalculation. When Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya submitted documents last moment, instead of her husband, they registered her because they truly didn't believe that a housewife who had never ever experienced of public speaking would become anyone significant for the Belarusian population. But no one could have predicted their popularity even four months ago. But what was it about them that resonated with people? The very fact that they were so normal and that they represented so different layers of the society 
an intelligentsia, an art sector, a business sector, and then a housewife who always depended for the last 10 years on her husband's income. They made a collective portrait of Belarusian nation. And then in Belarus, women are known and respected for being active, for providing for their families. This comes back from the Second World War, when after the war, women had to restore the country because nearly every third Belarusian died in the Second World War. So there has been also a deep respect for female leadership in Belarus for a while. And then president made another mistake. He twice commented that a woman cannot be a president. He even said like, uh, you know, anyone who didn't serve in the army cannot be a president. And that pissed people off, you can imagine. Yeah, definitely. I want to ask you about the prolonged protests because these are unprecedented and as far as their size and the length to which they've gone. And so what is happening with the people where they feel empowered to do so because organizing at this scale requires a lot of organization. It requires a lot of persistence. It requires smarts. It requires some mass mobilization that 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 depends on experience. Well, the products could have died quickly if the government would not have made one more mistake. If it would not allow the police brutality where people were tortured, raped, killed, and mass between 1911 of August, when also internet was nearly blocked all over the country. This, and then they made a second mistake that they have not started an official investigation against those accidents of torture and instead starting, started summoning people who complained to police, accusing them of criminal acts. So imagine you've just nearly been beaten to death, you hope for some justice, you think it was some policeman maybe who was crazy, and you get criminal charges for participating in mass riots and get into jail second time. So this was something that initiated in so many Belarusians the historic memory of communism, Stalinism, and fascism. And this is something that Belarusians have suffered so much from that many people were mobilized to go into the streets or to protest other ways so that the history never repeats itself. They started feeling that this is their last chance to avoid mass murders, concentration camps, or other things that every family in Belarus has experienced in this or another way. This is a very unique, this is a, we're talking about Belarus, but for our listeners here, uh, and especially for the uh, diverse audience that I have of Black folks here, one thing that always resonated with me when I am in Ukraine, where I'm at right now, uh, in Georgia and these other places, people like, just like black Americans, as you know, we have our black lives matter movement here where we're, uh, fighting against police brutality. A lot of people assume, uh, and, and people, I mean, Western experts, we like to draw these parallels, these parallels that don't make sense between, you know, the United States and what's going on in countries like your own. But one thing that makes sense, particularly from a people level, is we don't like to be abused by cops. You know, that that's the thing that that really gets us off, because in Ukraine, for example, 
people's experts were saying that the Ukrainian protesters were uh, really pushing back because Yanukovych didn't sign the EU agreement. And that wasn't it. It was because the protesters were being beaten by the cops and they said, this is just too much, right? And so it seems like um, you're, you're telling me a similar situation where the police are being abusive. Yeah, but, but just, just to make it really clear what makes it even different from Ukraine, the courts right. are taking the side of policemen every time. If you're even lucky to get to the court, there is no independent judiciary, period. And in this case, you can't really even hope for some kind of justice. The, the very fact of the impunity of these crimes, the, this very fact is something that is profoundly different even from Ukraine, where all this brutality was happening. You could still hope for some court independence. You could still hope for the working parliament that could exert some pressure on the president. And the government allowed some free media to be in country and no one blocked internet for three days. Imagine the US would have internet shut down for full three days and the brutality would be happening and you would never get justice. This is what Belarusians realized could become their everyday life. Wouldn't you go into the street after that and realize that if you stop coming into the street, you will be the next victim? Absolutely, absolutely. And so, but that even drives a point home more for me in that I think a lot of us didn't expect this, you know, the Belarusians to rise up in that same way. You've explained why. Right now, can you just tell us where everything is in regards to this month-long protest? Do you foresee them continuing? Yes, I think the protests will continue. But of course, naturally, with the colder time of the year and with more and more violence or uh, car persecution against those who are going out, face recognition and people being summoned to a police even weeks after they've been recognized as protesters, the protest will become less populous at some point. But I think a more important trend is something that is happening now all over the country, which is the so-called single person protest actions or small centers of protest. I think yesterday a miner, Yuri Korzun, went down 300 meters in the mine and chained himself there and stopped the process. And before that, he actually spread all over social media his appeal to the president to uh, stop you know, the violence and to agree to leave his post and other political demands. And then he was taken out violently, of course, but the whole column of workers of, of this uh, mine actually walked to the police station to demand his release and he was set free for now. So the government could not predict it because the government is used to the centralized protests. They're used to people getting into the streets. That's been happening all previous years as well. Maybe not in the last 10 years, but people in Belarus are used to go out into the streets and to show their discontent. But what has not been happening is this partisan underground, you know, protest, which you cannot expect when the next move would be. And the government, with all its repressive structure, doesn't have enough power and control over the whole society. So I expect this will be more alike Polish solidarity movement back in the 80s, 
but I hope there will be never a martial law as the Poland had. Right. <laughs> but, but you, yeah, exactly. But another thing that I think is ironic is that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the main people who are organizing the protests uh, for independence uh, in 1991 and before that, leading up to leading to the collapse of the USSR, were union workers. Uh, them as well, but without intellectuals, uh, the whole art sectors, uh, without students, it wouldn't have been possible either. Same as in Poland, you need at least several classes of the society or groups of the society to come together, which is exactly this moment in Belarus. The workers, the intelligentsia or intellectuals, students, and then like normal, uh, like business, small business owners, big business owners, they all are now united by one goal and they have agreed to put their political differences aside. They don't agree on many things, but they agree on one thing that Belarus needs democracy. How is Lukashenko talking to his people currently about all of this? Well, he is using a very familiar narrative. He's basically talking to all about all of this as nothing, as if nothing has changed since 2006 and 2010, because then he also accused the West, of course, in uh, being the puppet masters of the whole protests. He has, he and his propaganda have been accusing people of being paid to go to protest. This time they even gave price tag, like women are paid some like uh, 15 euro and men are paid 10, something like that. Uh, he's also saying that, so he has been saying that the COVID contributed to that because the borders were shut by other countries and many of the uh, workers from Russia and from Poland, the Belarusians came back and have no jobs, which I think is partially true about that. Mm, yeah. So that's kind of, you know, an unlikely situation for them. But basically, he's very dismissive. He has said he will never have a dialogue with any of them. And you can see that the uh, police is arresting one by one all this coordination council of opposition, like public figures, or forcing them into exile which means, of course, he doesn't want to recognize that it is not just a group of people. It is not even just a group of opposition. It's actually a very considerable part of the nation, definitely more than 20% or something like that, that he wants to believe, wants to have him gone. Another uh, key element to this is the Kremlin, particularly Vladimir Putin. What are people concerned about or talking about in regards to what the Kremlin plans on doing and what they're currently are doing uh, with in the you know in responding to these protests? Well, of course, everyone understands that Russia has all technical and even legal grounds to enter Belarus with its troops if it wants, and then just to never leave because Belarus and Russia are a union state. It would be very much like with what Bahrain had during the Arab Spring when Saudi Arabia and uh, Emirates troops entered to pacify the protests after months of protests in the central square, killed people and then just left and no one really paid attention. So that has been a fear, especially in the first weeks of the protests, that Russia would use its military potential to help Lukashenko. But for now, it seems that Russia has just deployed its propaganda outlet, Russia Today, to help Lukashenko's propaganda. 
uh, more than 30 people from Russia today are right now in Minsk uh, in four different hotels doing probably some tourism because none of them is officially employed in the Belarusian media, uh, enjoying the sites. Uh, so for now, the Russia's support has been informational support, of course, diplomatic support, but Lukashenko is about to visit Moscow. And the question is, what will be the price that Russia will ask to pay for that? which economic concessions Belarus will make, or the Belarusian government, to secure this support in the future. So I think Russia's support will be a conditional one, and Kremlin's support, I want to say, because many Russian intellectuals and free media have supported the protesters. So the Kremlin's support will be very much uh, conditional. Maybe he will be forced, Lukashenko, to recognize the Crimea annexation, which Belarus has officially not recognized. Why? Oh, that's a good question. Lukashenko himself said that Belarus could not economically afford it because he claimed that the West threatened to switch off SWIFT for Belarus, SWIFT payments and other things, and that Russia was economically weak at that point during, due to sanctions to compensate Belarus for being punished for that. That was Lukashenko's theory, which he spoke about in several interviews. But I think he was also keeping it as an argument that if he will be pressed to give one more aspect of his sovereignty, then he would say, and now I will recognize that Crimea is Russia. It costs you nothing, and then yet it is seen as a very significant political gesture. Yeah, definitely. What's Lukashenko's, Lukashenko and Putin's relationship been like over the years? They don't seem particularly to like each other on the personal I level. I figured that much, yeah. <laughs> in, a way, in a way, Lukashenko felt much more comfortable with Boris Yeltsin. And uh, there had been rumors that actually the whole union state idea was initiated by Lukashenko uh, in the middle 90s because he saw that Yeltsin was already old and sick. And he was hoping that by becoming uh, the leader of the union state, Lukashenko could rule Russia. He had really big ambitions. He spent a lot of time in investing into his image in the eyes of Russians which has resulted even now in many Russian regions really believing he's a good leader. Of course, Putin would never allow that. Putin is a strong man of his own. But on the other hand, Belarus was really uh, a good ally for Russia, right? Uh, it is the buffer state, as Russia would call it, between Russia and NATO, Russia and the European Union. And then even from the ideological point of view, it's always better to have a dictatorship near you, which is even worse than you are. In this way, Putin could, for many years, not be blamed to be the worst dictator in Europe. He had Lukashenko to demonstrate. That has a little bit changed recently, but I think that also you could look at, for example, South Africans in Zimbabwe case, or China and Burma, right? It's always good to have a dependent nation near you, and you can always say, but look, it's even worse there. Why do you criticize us? Can you explain the, the union state? Because a lot of us don't know what that is and what Belarus's relationship is in that dynamic. Well, so basically it's like the European Union, but just between two states. <laughs> if it's, it's the closest metaphor I can bring to you. Uh, so since mid-90s, Belarus said it wanted to keep special relations with the Russian Federation. 
the Eurasian Union, right? No, the Eurasian Union was later built as a bigger one. There is a legal entity called the Union State of Belarus and Russia, or the Union of Belarus and Russia. And this is a separate relation. There are a lot of intergovernmental treaties between Russia and Belarus that, for example, give you the same employment opportunities in both countries, the same opportunity to study, to get medical help, uh, the free uh, trade movement, the free barter movement. So it's basically like a real, the, the closest possible state of the union, except for one thing, there is no single currency. And Russia really insists because Belarus had promised to have the single currency back in 2005 and has been delaying since then, not allowing for Russia to emit this new currency, wanting to keep the printing press for the money at home. So in a way, uh, Russia, if we would speak about Russia, if it wasn't Vladimir Putin, but let's imagine there would be a democratic Russia. And it would look at all these intergovernmental agreements with Belarus and would say, guys, sorry, you promised so many things to us in return for us allowing you to enter our job markets, to sell your products without any fees, you know, and other things. Why don't you deliver? And Russia plays exactly this card. It asks Lukashenko, where's the single currency? Where are things that you promised us to deliver for all these years? It's time to pay says Russia. And last year especially, when Vladimir Putin has not yet come up with this idea of constitutional change, there was a very popular idea among the state Russian experts that actually Vladimir Putin would continue being a legal president of Russia by being the president of Russia, Belarus, new state. So Belarus was pressed into agreeing to even further integration with Russia, and that's sparked a lot of protests last year already. Wow. Wow. So tell me what role Russia today or RT they're known now. How influential is RT currently? Because as you told us, there are 30 journalists there um, at the moment. Well, RT as a media outlet is uh, not very much known in Belarus. Sputnik, which is the radio and online service of the same owner, is known a little bit more, but it's been quite moderate. But Lukashenko asked RT, and he has officially confirmed that, to come and teach Belarusian media, state media, how to do proper propaganda. Well, he doesn't call it propaganda, but he said, I invited them to come and teach you guys how to do things. Because the very fact of violence may put off so many people that even state media workers went on strike and started demanding to at least allow them to cover the facts of police brutality. So this is when he invited RT. First, RT denied it. But now when Margarita Simonian interviewed him recently in his palace on the same day when many more journalists have been arrested or uh, so their house and, and you mentioned, yeah. by the way, the name Maria Margarita Simonian, the head of RT. Yes, sorry. I, I, I always assume people know who the RT chief is, but she's not that well known yet. <laughs> so, anyway, there, so anyway, it seems that uh, he just decided to use their kind of professional experience in supporting the state narrative, which, of course, many people call propaganda. And they're helping him on the level of human resources, but not so much RT as a brand. Human resources as in what? 
as a journalist, technical workers, because many people who work uh, like as, uh, I don't know, sound engineers or script producers uh, went on strike in Belarusian state media. So the Russians quickly replaced them. And then there also, uh, there have been some very strange uh, videos being broadcast on Belarus state TV channels showing some images of bombed Syria and then saying that if Svetlana Tikhanovskaya becomes the leader, this is what Belarus will become. Something like that we haven't seen before the uh, car, the, this crew from Russia has arrived. Also when there are protests, for example, when journalists are arrested and the Russia Today crew is working, the Russia Today uh, documents are just checked and they're allowed to film later. It's like they gained exclusivity and sometimes they make such angles and police seem to cooperate with them that play to their narrative about what's going on in during the protests. I, I wanted, yeah, I wanted to talk about that because in order for that to work, the police have to cooperate with the with with, with RT in order for any of that to happen. Well, I think they just have been given instructions like get all the journalists out of this place. But if someone shows RT credentials, let them go. That's easy. If you have this order coming from whoever gives you orders, you just follow the order, right? There was even a crazy situation where two journalists have been arrested at the same moment. One of them was from RT and one was from the independent outlet. And uh, the one from independent outlet was accused of participation in the action and even leading the protesters, although he's a photo reporter. So the RT guy witnessed for him in his defense say no, I saw him making pictures. We were taken and arrested together. I was let out. He was jailed. He didn't do any of that, but the court didn't believe that witness. It believed the witnesses of a policeman who witnessed several people that yes, he really led that column. So it seems that RT just got some indulgentsia for just helping, giving help in hand to Lukashenko on propaganda to be immune from this police uh, persecution. Were you surprised when a lot of the state TV journalists resigned and, and, and joined the protests? Uh, yes and no. Well, first of all, most of those who resigned and joined the protests were not journalists, but rather technicians, sound engineers, the support staff, who, if you don't have any independent uh, TV channel inside the country, and you still want to do TV, you have to practice somewhere, right? But of course, there were also well-known people, mostly the celebrity show presenters, one of them, I think. And then there was one guy from the presidential pool who just got uh, jailed today for 15 days for participation in the protest. Demchenka, I think, I don't remember his surname properly, who actually indeed also joined the protest. And I think they joined them not because of the falsified elections, as I said, everyone could predict it. That was the most predictable factor. But because the government did nothing to uh, follow up on this brutality against the protesters. And that did not surprise me because that, the, the brutality surprised me. But the fact that people went on strike and decided to join the protest, it just showed that they were not as cynical as maybe they're, some of the Russian uh, propagandists are. So you said the brutality surprised you? the scale of brutality because for example there haven't ever been any casualties during the protests before in belarus 
people went into the streets massively in 1999, in 2006, in 2010. They were beaten, sometimes arrested. No one ever killed protesters before. There were accounts of mistreatment by the police, including in the, uh, in the yards, backyards of the detention centers, but not accounts that re really resemble the accounts of the victims of the Nazi concentration camps. So the scale and the, the strength of that brutality, that was something that shocked the whole nation probably the internet shutdown was meant to prevent the stories from being shared instantly, but people still shared. There was still a way to share that. Telegram, right? Telegram. Also, they can't really block the whole internet because they need internet themselves. So those who could use virtual private networks, VPN, uh, such as iPhone, they also used them. And Belarus in three days became the second world leader in using the VPN after Iran. So, you know, like a couple of million people suddenly started using this uh, virtual, you know, private network uh, circum circumvention of censorship tools because Belarusians have very good IT skills. This is something the government has been very proud of and this is something that has backfired at them. In every uh, yard, in every gated community, you will have at least one person who will come to you and help you circumvent the censorship. So people learned about it very quickly. They shared. And you asked me previously, how can they organize? Well, they self-organize. There are thousands of local chats now where people in small communities self-organize and decide how they will stage a protest. It's not really centralized anymore. I read one article that quoted Svetlana Tsekhanouskaya in which she said, we don't necessarily need the help or want assistance from the West to deal with uh, our issues. We would rather be addressing this on our own. And, 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 you know, and so there's been conversations around recognizing Belarusians uh, agency to deal with their own people. We're not trying to be West. We're not trying to be pro-Russia. We're just trying to be Belarus. Yeah, I mean, I think what she meant, I think, is that unlike many people, when, when protests started happening, although, as I say, it's not the first instance of protest, mass protests in Belarus, but this time they grabbed so much attention that so many well-wishing Ukrainians, Georgians, Russians, Americans started giving advice. Like, oh, you guys should do that. Oh, you guys should do that. And there are so many differences. And many people started immediately comparing it to the so-called Euromaidan in Ukraine, which broke up, uh, which, which started after Yanukovych uh, decided to not sign the associated agreement with the European Union. So that was a very clear, like, West vs. Russia divide, right? So I think what she meant is, look, guys, we will decide later, after we get the democratically you know, democratic procedure for the elections, at least, whom we want to support, West or Russia. This current protest is not about being pro-Western or pro-Russian. It's about having the basic right of uh, changeable power and democratically organized elections, a very basic right. So please don't try to put it into these different pockets of West vs. Russia. Of course, if we believe that the concept of democracy as such is a Western con concept, or that the human rights themselves are somehow Western, 
then you could probably say that uh, this is a Western protest, but the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is universal. It's something different. It's a different level of protest. And I think she was very right to say that and to remind that. And, and so let me, and to make sure, um, I'm gonna read the full quote. Uh, she said, the Belarusian people have a responsibility for what's going on. We think that we have to solve this problem by ourselves, but if it happens that we need one day the help of other countries, help in organizing this, maybe mediation or negotiation, of course, any country that would like to help us with this question is invited. Yeah, but it's, it's also true because like, we don't know whom Lukashenko would listen to. It's the biggest question, like he says, okay, I want to talk to the protesters. He says, I will talk to workers. Then workers go out into the streets in huge crowds and he says, I don't know you, I want to talk to you. So it seems like he doesn't have anyone inside the country that he would consider a partner in a dialogue. Moreover, both Angela Merkel, uh, the German leader, and uh, uh, the French president Macron said at some point that they were trying to call him and no one picked up. And instead he sent messages back via Vladimir Putin. In this situation, it seems obvious that Lukashenko is going to talk only to someone he recognized as a party in this process. And Tikhanovska is right to say, guys, if anyone can help, you know, if he starts talking to you first, well, please come help us. One of the things I, when I was thinking about this conversation was I wanted to ask you about what's going on in Belarus and what the Belarusian people are talking about and asking for, because I think too often it gets into this conversation about how does this impact the relationships between America? How does it relate, you know, um, and it becomes this geopolitical conversation that decenters the people. Well, Belarusians are demanding the cons their constitutional right to have changeable, you know, executive power to be fulfilled. The constitution of Belarus too says there has to be free and fair elections. The constitution of Belarus says that Belarus is a unitary, sovereign, democratic state. So the people came there to defend their constitution, to defend their basic right. They want to be given the same right as many other nations in the world to choose their fate and destiny. And right now, yes, many people have their own grievances. Some people don't like the way the economy is still outdated and becomes outdated with every day, which means we are still in the future of our children and grandchildren. Some people don't like that the government is suppressing the Belarusian language and prefers Russian. And many Belarusian speakers feel that the bilingual nature of the state, again, in the constitution, is not really, you know, uh, implemented. Some other people don't like the violation of freedom of expression. Some other people maybe don't like something else. It's not about that right now. It's kind of taken a different level, like let us finally have first free and fair elections in quarter in the last quarter century. So it sounds like Lukashenko is a very lonely man at the moment. It sounds like that, uh, especially the rumors are that he's the youngest uh, uh, son, Nikolai, who was until recently with him uh, wearing the some you know military gear is now studying abroad in some private school. Some people say in Moscow, some people say in Switzerland, because president's uh, personal plane has been uh, stationed in Basel, Switzerland, for several days already. 
So yeah, he seems to be very lonely, uh, but of course there is a big uh, support from him, whether genuine or forced, coming from all these people, from the governmental structures who have been supporting his regime all these years. The police, the Ministry of Defense, the whole so-called ideologists, because this is an official position in each executive kind of small council, and each city and each village you will have a state ideologist. And many other people who actually found it quite comfortable to exist within his system and who would care a little bit less about freedoms, about the future of economy, and care more about their personal gains. Some people are also afraid. He is, uh, his system is quite efficient in saying that if you really allow the changes, you will share the fate of Ukraine, which still has Donbass issue and Crimea, Oh, look at Armenia and Azerbaijan, Nagorno-Karabakh. Oh, look at Georgia with Abkhazia and South Ossetia. So some people think, okay, we at least know this guy. What happens if the changes come? And then Russia, let's say, will take part of our territory or something like that, or there will be a civil war. So he's probably not as lonely as the democratic protesters would want him to be. The protests are continuing and it seems like they'll be ongoing in the distant future so thank you very much uh belarusian journalist and editor maria saduskaya kompilach non-resident fellow at the center for european policy analysis we appreciate you giving us your time today to break down what's going on in belarus thank you so much thank you very much bye Thanks for tuning in to Black Diplomats. We especially want to shout out our patrons. If you like this episode, please become a patron at the link in the episode notes. Also, rate and subscribe to Black Diplomats on your favorite podcast platform. The intro and outro music is brought to you by my fellow Detroiter, Tall Black Guy.